Welcome to Pride. You have reached a stop on our Acast Audio Pride Parade, where we travel around the world to hear from our LGBTQ plus creators on what pride means to them. So grab your whistle, get your face paint on, and settle into a special celebration of pride. And at the end of this podcast, we'll hear where our Audio Pride Parade is heading next. So stay tuned. G'day, humans. I'm Josh Zepps, host of Uncomfortable Conversations, obviously, because this is a podcast called Uncomfortable Conversations with Josh Zepps, and I just said who I am. All that aside, this is a special episode. It's part of the Acast Audio Pride Parade. My reflections on pride. For those of you who know me, it may come as no surprise to you that my thoughts about this are complicated, and they don't fall as neatly into the tribal camps that you might assume they would for a gentleman who identifies, perhaps grudgingly, as a member of the LGBTQI plus community. <clears throat> We're a community. We all sit, sit around and have tea and scones of a Saturday afternoon. Uh, if you're just joining the show as a result of having stumbled upon this show as part of the ACAST Global Audio Pride Parade, where podcasts on the ACAST network all over the world hand off to each other week on week, jet-setting around from city to city, podcast to podcast, host to host, ruminating on what pride means to us and what it was like to grow up LGBTQI plus in our city and what the community is like where we live and what the struggles are and what the common experience is and where and how we celebrate pride. If you are new to me, you may remember me by way of introduction from one of my many appearances on Joe Rogan's podcast, the most recent of which went viral during the Joe Rogan Spotify COVID controversy. Where there's an adverse risk associated with the vaccine. It's like yes. a two to four fold increase in the instances of myocarditis. Yes. But you know what? Hospitalization the, you know that there's COVID. an increased risk of myocarditis in, among that age cohort from getting COVID as well, which exceeds the risk of myocarditis from the vaccine. I don't think that's true. I don't think it it's is. true. I don't, no, no, no. I don't think it's true that there's an increased risk of myocarditis from people catching COVID that are young versus increased risk of myocarditis from the vaccine. No, there is. There's both. Pro well, let's look that up because I don't think that's true. <laughs> There's myocarditis more common after COVID-19 infection than vaccination. But is this with children? Uh, yeah, we're talking about young people. Men and boys aged under 30 after this is what it says here. With, with children is the issue. Well, no, we were talking about 15-year-olds. Well, we're talking about young children. Male child. Yes, 12 to 17. 12 to 17, more likely to develop myocarditis within three months of catching COVID at a rate of 450 cases per million infection. This compares to 67 cases of myocarditis per million at the same time following their second dose of Pfizer. Yeah, so you're about eight times likelier to get myocarditis from getting COVID than from getting the vaccine. That's interesting. Now, that, that is said, not what I've read before, but also it's like, when, even when we're reading these things, it's like, what are we getting this from? Is this from well, the VAERS the report? But even from the VAERS reports, when they report this stuff, so that went viral, and now I'd like to welcome you to Uncomfortable Conversations. Let's begin with what it was like growing up LGBTQI plus in my town of Sydney. I'd begin by saying that there is no such thing as growing up LGBTQI plus because trans people have a very different experience from lesbians who have a very exper different experience from gay people who have a very different experience from plus, whatever plus is. And... So the experience personally of growing up as 
someone in a city who a city that is renowned for being one of the gayest cities in the world was both positive and negative. Sydney in the 90s was flamboyantly, wonderfully, deliciously, ostentatiously gay. The Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras is the biggest gay and lesbian event in the world. Uh, Sydney is proud of its gay and queer diversity. But as a result, for someone who found himself attracted to boys and girls and was quite a brainy philosophical kid who just thought that, look, obviously everybody finds attractive people attractive and charming people charming uh, and sexy people sexy. I just assumed that we're all following some kind of a cultural norm, a social rule that says that if you are a normal person, then you hook up with members of the opposite sex. And if you love fashion and you speak in a certain way and you don't like sport and you want to drive along through the gay and lesbian Mardi Gras atop a huge inflatable penis wearing arseless chaps and waving rainbow flags, then you date people of the same sex. And that binary was caused partly by homophobes and anti-gay bigots but partly, I must say, by gayness itself, by the notion of pride at the turn of this century. Now, I'm not saying that pride was never necessary or that pride wasn't important. Indeed, today, if you're listening to this in Nigeria or Pakistan or rural Alabama, then it's probably very important for the queer community to come together around itself and be supportive and aggressive and perhaps doctrinaire, in defending the contours of what it means to be a member of this quote-unquote community. And certainly in the past, that was necessary. We needed it to get to Stonewall, and we needed it to get equal rights. We maybe even needed it up until we got marriage equality. But I had had fulfilling relationships with girls when I was young, and what it was like for me to come out, and for me to be a member of this community, was a mess of confusion. A total mess of confusion, the blame for which I place, as I say, at the feet of the gay community just as much as I do at the feet of homophobes. Before I elaborate on this, I want you to listen to something. My partner, my spouse, my husband, has a podcast of his own. It's called Come Out Wherever You Are. And it's interviews with people about their coming out stories. Well, the final guest of his first season was me. And I can't really do a better job of articulating the messy conflictedness of pride than I did when he put me on the spot with his very first question. Take a listen. Let's start with the fact that when our producers reached out to you, we gave you a formula, a little introduction formula. We said, tell us your name, tell us uh, your sexuality and when you came out. And you did not identify your sexuality in that sentence why? Because I'm not sure that it is useful to anybody to think about each other in categories. When you, If I were to say, I'm Josh Sepps and I'm gay, which would be a fine thing to say and would make a lot of sense to a lot of people and I don't have any problem saying, for most people that would include a whole bunch of characteristics that I don't think are relevant to the question of, my sexuality or who I am. Mm. So gay 
has a certain style. It has a certain fashion. I mean, look at what you're wearing. Come on, you are gay. <laughs> I look great. You are flaming. <laughs> I mean, let's face it. It's true. You look fantastic. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, he's wearing yellow and pink. It's a cardigan. He looks Just like picture, a nana. Picture Harry Styles. It looks like Styles. there's been an explosion <laughs> in a cotton factory and it's all come together into... Anyway, let's not go into fashion. But you know what I mean? There's a certain way of talking, a certain way of walking, a certain way of, of uh, a certain politics, a certain musical style. And I always felt, I found that to be alienating. Mm. And let me be clear, I'm not saying that gay is that and I'm not saying that all gay people are that. What I'm saying is that there's a, a kind of psychological, cultural, intellectual category that we've created, which is a fiction, which was created by people who share a particular style and they've created their box in their community and that's fine for them to live in. But I'll only play along with that definition to the extent that it's useful for people to understand that I happen to be married to a man and that I happen to be turned on by attractive men. Like beyond that, I don't think that the, all of the other baggage that goes along with the term is particularly useful. So I'll avoid it when I can. So that's me on my husband's podcast. And there's something else that I didn't say there that's relevant, I think, to thinking about pride, which is I don't really take pride in things that I have no control over. I'm not proud that I'm six foot. I'm not proud that I was raised in a family with a good command of the English language and so I can communicate well. And I'm not ashamed of not being six foot two. I, I just don't think that pride is something that I ascribe to things that weren't my doing. So I'm a little bit, I understand that if you're raised in a culture and a society where you're inculcated from day one with a sense of shame about who you are, shame about something over which you have no control, then it made sense just to counter that, those forces of, of imposed shame with a sense of inner pride. But once there are no longer very strong forces coming from outside insisting that you be ashamed of something over which you have no control, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me to take credit for something over which I have no control. Now, let's just talk about gayness for a second. Historically, the idea of there being people who are gay and people who are straight is pretty anomalous. The idea that nine out of ten people are constituted in such a way that they will always find any physical connection to members of the same sex repulsive, and that 10% of the population, or whatever it is, is constituted in such a way that they are only and irrevocably attracted to members of the same sex, and then you've got a few other people sort of at the, at the margins who might be bisexuals or intersex or transgender. That idea is relatively new. And it came out of... In the late 19th century, the identification of the homosexual as a deviant individual and the response to that by members of that community was to cohere as a community, to start uh, in instantiating themselves as a people, as a tribe with common goals, common aspirations, common affects, common ways of behaving, common interests, and to create this community of human beings. And to assert, yes, we are here, we are queer, we are a people. But that had never been the case historically. 
I mean, back in, you know, everyone always trots out ancient Greece and ancient Rome when all the wise elders were shagging young boys. That was not considered to be a gay thing throughout most of history. You can look at Samoa and Tonga. You can look at Paris in the 19th century. There are all kinds of societies and cultures in the past where there's been a much grayer understanding of what the heart and the loins are attracted to than the binary that we're expected to believe that gets spouted by both Christian conservatives and hardline gay activists that, you know, we were born this way. We have no control over it. That's not my experience. And I know a lot of people who have slept with straight guys. And I don't think those straight guys are closeted gay men, really. I think that our attractions, our sense of ourselves is complicated and messy. I mean, when I first moved to New York City, I lived in New York for the majority of my adult life. I used to work on HuffPost Live as a host and producer. And when I moved to New York City, outside my window, there was a huge Abercrombie and Fitch billboard. And all it was, was the torso of a young man from his nipples, you couldn't see his head above it, down to like, just below his pubes. And you could see a little string, like a ribbon of, of jeans at the very, very bottom. And it was just Abercrombie and Fitch. That is not being sold to gay men. That's being sold to young straight men. And young straight men are feeling something when they see that torso. Now, does that occur to them as them getting a boner and wanting to blow the holder of the torso? No. No, I don't think so. But is there some kind of aspirational attraction there? Is there some kind of a desire to be that thing, to want that thing, to crave that thing that just walks you up to the edge of homoeroticism? Of course there is. Look at the catwalks of Paris and Milan. Look at the fact that we are all obviously attracted to certain ideals of beauty. And that doesn't cleave innocently or cleanly along sex and gender lines. Like, what is being sold in that Abercrombie ad? It's the guy. It's the guy with his, you know, little strip of jeans and his little hint of pubes being sold to other young guys. That doesn't mean that all guys are gay and they're in the closet. What it means is that lust is messy, love is messy, aspirations are messy. But what we've created in the second half of the 20th century, well, really throughout the 20th century, and what we are still inheritors of, is this conception that you're either in or you're out, that you're either gay or straight, bi, whatever it might be. But basically, let's talk about the game as being gay or straight. Don't want to have to keep qualifying it with the other letters in the endless acronym. Humanity is divided into these two types of people we're supposed to believe, people who were born this way. But in other eras and in other places, the people who are looking at that Abercrombie and Fitch torso would not feel afraid necessarily of feeling aroused by it, would not feel that if they did get aroused by it, it would mean that they had to jump out of the community of who they are and into another community that has a certain way of talking, a certain way of dancing, a certain politics, a certain fashion, a certain style, a certain set of interests that would betray everything else about them that isn't their sexual attraction. Today, unfortunately, for a young male to confess attraction to another male, although this is changing, it is getting better, there is much more sexuality fluidity and gender fluidity. But certainly when I was growing up, there was an expectation 
that you can either be this thing or that thing. And I definitely wasn't that thing in my fashion or my interests. So I was this thing, and I didn't know where that left me. So the question is less for me about, is pride necessary in order to overcome prejudice? And more a question of, at what point does pride cease having served us? And does it start becoming an impediment? Because it actually plays into the same binary narrative that the Christian conservative is pushing of an us and a them. Now, you might say, well, sure, there could be a downside to being too cohesive as a community, too proud as a community, because you might alienate people who don't feel like they fit in. Maybe it's too small-minded. Maybe it's too rigid. But it's worth it because there's still so much discrimination. This is something I hear a lot. There's still so much discrimination against the LGBTQI plus alphabet soup that we need pride. Well, if what we're talking about is being teased for being gay, I wholeheartedly agree. There is still way too much of that. People are mean, especially adolescents, and people will continue to be mean. But they'll, be, they'll continue to be mean to you for whatever they can find out about you that is different. If you can't catch a ball, they'll tease you for that, even if you're straight. If you're skinny, they'll tease you for that. If you're fat, they'll tease you for that. If you're ugly, you're less likely to get hired. You won't just not you won't just get teased. Studies have been done. Ugly people are not as successful in job interviews. They're also less likely to be promoted. If you're short, especially as a man, you are less likely to get hired, you're less likely to be promoted and you get paid less. We talk about the gender pay gap. There is a there is a shortness pay gap. If you're socially awkward, you're less likely to get hired and you're less likely to be promoted. And if you're socially awkward, you will get teased. So let's just accept that we live in a world in which some people are sometimes mean and nasty. And yes, if you're gay or you're lesbian or you're bi, you will get teased. And you will get teased for that. But if you weren't one of those things, you would probably be getting teased for whatever else people could find out about you. Because very few people don't get teased. Unless you're the high school football jock and you're absolutely gorgeous and everybody loves you, you're probably getting teased for something. And if we're talking about bigger discrimination, if we're saying we need pride, we need a cohesive community that aggressively asserts itself in the 21st century, not because we get teased and demeaned and belittled for our sexuality, but because there is a bigger scope of discrimination going on, I would ask you to point me to where that discrimination is. Again, if you're in Nigeria or Pakistan, yes, absolutely, very much needed. But if you're listening to this podcast, if you're listening to my voice now, you probably live in a big city in a rich Western country. And if you live in a big city in a rich Western country in the 2020s, every company in your city has a diversity and inclusion policy that proactively celebrates the queer community, that proactively celebrates pride, Every corporation puts rainbow flags on their ads, their press releases, their social media accounts. Hollywood is heavily gay. Hollywood is flaming. In companies, too. Australia's largest airline, Qantas, is run by a gay man. Apple is run by a gay man. 
The head of Macy's is gay. The head of Dow Chemicals is gay. The head of Fidelity, one of the largest asset managers in the world, is a lesbian. What about entertainment? How oppressed are we in entertainment? Gay TV shows are everywhere. RuPaul, The L Word. Schitt's Creek is one of the most celebrated shows of the decade, created by and starring a gay man who plays a gay man. Orange is the New Black, Euphoria, Grace and Frankie, Sex Education, Queer Eye, Crashing, Looking, Glee, Modern Family, Riverdale. Now everyone's going gaga for Heartstopper. Even Star Trek Discovery has a gay space couple. Are we really saying at this point, in big cities, in rich Western countries in 2022, that non-heterosexual people are subjected to widespread, culturally accepted bigotry? If the 15-year-old high school jock is suppressed because he has a crush on a boy, how much is that because of anti-gay hatred? And how much of that is because of the expectation that if he is open about the truth of his heart and his loins, he will be bundled into a rigid conception of proud, flamboyant gayness that changes who he is? For me, it was the latter. For me, I was less concerned about anti-gay hatred, about people thinking that I was going to go to hell. And religion is the other elephant in the room here. I would add to the Nigeria, Pakistan, rural Alabama caveat that if you live in a deeply religious family or community, then yes, you need pride to get the hell out of Dodge. But putting that aside, most of us in the secular, rich, big city 21st century, in my experience, are more suppressed, more stymied by the insistence on a particular conception of gayness that pride is emblematic of than we are by anti-gay bigots who are currently persona non grata in all of the boardrooms, in, I mean, everywhere, everywhere. There are a few things that you could say in a major company today that would raise as many eyebrows and be as likely to get you hauled before HR than something openly homophobic. Does this mean there's no anti-gay hatred? Of course not. But at some point, the question becomes, what is the utility in maintaining and sustaining and feeding a mentality of victimhood? There's just a lot of victimhood today. And part of what this podcast, Uncomfortable Conversations, seeks to do is to have conversations that trigger the tripwires of the culture wars in smart and intelligent and empathetic ways that sort of steel man our opponents and try to be as generous as we can towards what they're actually trying to articulate rather than playing gotcha all the time. I think it's ridiculous that so many people are expected to have beliefs that fall into a particular bucket, a particular silo, such that if you tell me what you think about climate change, I can probably tell you what you think about corporate taxes. Now that's crazy. The two things don't have anything to do with each other, but conservatives think one way on both and progressives think one way on both. Well, screw that. I want to be a bit heterodox. I want us to be able to think for ourselves. And part of thinking for ourselves means not embracing a victim mentality every time we can. And we hear a lot about identity politics and about cancel culture and wokeness and all that stuff. You don't have to buy into the narrative that that is humankind's greatest threat to nonetheless see that there is something corrosive, 
psychologically corrosive, culturally corrosive, about forming packs, tribes, mobs, warring factions that are just sniping at each other all the time, forming their own conceptions of their own interests, engaging in a, a warfare of all against all, instead of seeing themselves as part of a common demos, a common, common polity that we're all involved in, instead of giving each other the benefit of the doubt and trying to speak to the highest intelligence of your opponents instead of the lowest, trying not to caricature them. You know, my grandparents were Holocaust survivors. My dad came to Australia as a refugee. And my grandmother never lost her sense of victimization. And it killed her psychologically. Everything was anti-Semitism. Everyone was out to get the Jews all the time. It's not a healthy way to live. Not everyone's always out to get you. Sometimes in the struggle for civil rights, you've got to stick, say, stick a fork in it. It's done. The turkey is roasted. Yeah, there are still a lot of problems. But at some point, constantly fighting and struggling as if you're a victim, as if everybody hates you, as if the deck is stacked against you, as if you have to rub everyone else's face in your fabulous gayness. At some point, not only does it not achieve what you want it to achieve out in the real world because people feel like they're being swept along on a cultural movement that they didn't choose to be part of, but it isn't even good for your own soul. And it provokes backlashes. It means that you alienate the potentially winnable moderate religious people, for example, who would be more than happy with marriage equality, more than happy with legal equality, but don't necessarily want their five-year-old kids at school being told that there's no such thing as men and no such thing as women and that there's no, you know, everyone can do whatever they want. You know, maybe I think that's a great idea to teach kids, but I want to live in a society that's diverse enough where people can object to that without being handed out of town and told that they have the blood of trans children on their hands, for example. Let's create a society that is capacious enough where the public square is rambunctious enough for lots of us to articulate lots of different ideas. And sometimes those will be ideas that sound a little bit homophobic. Maybe not everyone wants to bake the gay wedding cake. Maybe that human being who doesn't want to bake the gay wedding cake has a right to exist too, has a right to be part of our culture, part of our society. There comes a point at which you've scored enough on the board that you don't have to be so damn defensive about everything all the time. There comes a point at which your sense of victimhood becomes a little bit of a cudgel and becomes a little bit of a sort of self-masturbation project where we're all sitting around in a circle jerk congratulating ourselves on how oppressed we are. We're not that oppressed anymore. My grandmother was wrong to carry that wound for her whole life. But she had an excuse for it. She was run through Europe, hounded, every day by the Nazis. She was allowed to be sent crazy. What's our excuse? What's our excuse for insisting that we still live in a world that is so irredeemably filled with anti-gay hate, that we need special days, weeks, months to assert pride in something over which we had no control? The world's a big place. The ideal of the rainbow is great. Live and let live. I was born whatever way I was born. You were born whatever way you were born. People are raised with different ideas. People are raised with different attractions. People are raised with different storylines of who they fall in love with and who they don't. I don't think it's necessary to be 
shoving things down everybody's throat just to assert our right to exist. I would love to see a world in which, in a few decades' time, that 15-year-old high school jock feels liberated to be able to date a boy or date a girl without ripples of gushing conversations sweeping through the whole school of, like, is he or isn't he? It'd be nice if he didn't feel like going one way or the other meant opening up a whole Pandora's box of identity issues. And you can only do that by under, undermining the whole concept of identity. And that means undermining the whole, whole concept of community, which is why I made light of it earlier about having Saturday afternoon tea and drinks. I'm not a member of a, an LGBTQI plus community. I'm a man who's married to a man who has his own individual story. And yes, this is all coming from a place of privilege. I'm privileged to be white, I'm privileged to be male, but more than anything, I'm privileged to have been born in a rich country. More than anything, I'm privileged not to be really ugly or really short. There's lots of privilege that we all should be thankful for. And rather than pointing out the privilege of other people, it'd be nice if we just had a little bit more graciousness about the privileges with which we were born, even if we do happen to be a woman of color. I mean, you were born in a rich country, presumably. I think we can turn the dial down a little bit on the culture wars, on the identity wars, and hopefully create a culture in which it's less about, are you a member of this tribe or that tribe? Do you tick this checkbox or that checkbox? And more a culture of, okay, you're the 15-year-old jock. Now you're dating a guy. Two months later, he's dating a girl, and that's fine. Whatever gets his rocks off is totally okay. As long as everyone's cool with it, as long as it's all consensual, it doesn't have to mean that he's hopscotching between different identities or different communities or that he suddenly has to dress a certain way or go marching down Oxford Street in Sydney on a giant inflatable penis. Before you go, you will enjoy one more clip from my husband Sean's podcast. It's the very last question he asked me. You're prepared yeah. in some way, shape, or form. But for the kid, for the Josh, the 13-year-old, 12-year-old Josh, who's just going through life and feels isolated, confused because he doesn't fit into a box that the world wants to fit him in, what is your advice to that small, to that young child? I mean, I th- it sounds like such a cliche, but be yourself. Like, really honor the fact that you have a right to be here. What's hard in your teens, and not just with sexuality, but with everything, is that the universe seems like it's been designed and coordinated by a bunch of people who knew what they were doing and it may not have a place precisely for you. So you're trying on a bunch of different clothes and a bun- and, and seeing how you might fit into this cosmos. And I'm saying cosmos, it might be as small as your little community or your town or your school, but that's what it feels like. Mm. Uh, it feels expansive and endless and daunting. And I think the challenge of of your teenage years is to make friends with the fact or come to the realization that most people get in their late teens or early 20s that actually the whole world is just made up by people who have Mm -hmm. as little idea of what they're doing as you do. Mm. And we create our own way and we build our own networks and friendships out of trust and companionship and love and collaboration and intelligence and reason. And your job is to assert your own you in a way that shines brightly enough that it attracts other people and that it's 
uh, appealing and and fulfilling for you. There is no pre-cut Josh Sepp's hole in the universe that that you it has to make itself available for you. Like you sort of have to do that, and that takes a lot of ignoring what other kids your age think of you, because I think the surest way to lead an unhappy life is to uh, behave according to what you think other people are going to want you to do. And the surest way to be happy is to is to not be emotionally bothered by what other people think of you. Mm. Um, because people, I mean, the world around you is completely out of your control. So the, the, the path to happiness is to locate as much of your focus on your fields of control as you can. And what other people think and how other people judge you and what circumstances happen to you in your in your life you know all of the all of that extraneous stuff that happens to you or that you could acquire is ultimately going to amount to a huge pile of dust at the end of the day what is going to be lasting is your own sense of yourself and the connections that you make with other people so that's all a big long-winded way of saying if i was 13 year old josh now you know yeah i would just say you have a right to be here you're as much a part of a part of the universe as the as the sun and the moon and the stars so so go get them we're ending on that because i know i can't go and say anything that's going to make this conversation better we would have just been sitting and talking about this at home anyways but thank you for coming <laughs> in and talking to me about this I i'm glad it. we were rolling tape <laughs> So those are my two cents about pride. This is probably the uh, the least impressive version of the Acast Audio Pride Parade. Sorry, Acast. I know that I'm, uh, you know, probably not the rah 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 voice that uh, that you wanted, but maybe a little bit of diversity is good in this day and age. For more uncomfortable conversations, subscribe to this show where we interview the likes of Sam Harris, Zion Hersey Ali, Richard Dawkins, Jonathan Haidt, Eddie Izzard, David Frum, Justin Amash, Norm Macdonald. Rest in peace. So many people. It's time to pass you over to the next stop on the Acast Audio Pride Parade. Hopefully someone more on board with it than this disgruntled old boob you've just heard. Uh, You'll be travelling to New York this time to the podcast Trust and Believe with Sean T. Uncomfortable Conversations is produced by Stefan Postuma. Follow me, Josh Zepps, on Twitter and Instagram for all the latest. May your day be fruitful, your mind humble, your enemies generous, and your conversations perfectly, sparklingly, delectably uncomfortable.